This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Hawke's Bay's Frost Fans Limited is making strides in the world with its global brand, Frost Boss, and recently spent $12 million on a brand new factory with the capability of manufacturing three times the current number of Frost Fan blades for a growing global market. MBR travelled to Hawke's Bay to visit the factory and ask CEO Andrew Priest how its design would speed up production. So the new factory, it's, it manufactures our blades, uh, the blades is one of our points of differentiation to our competitors and the new factory allows us to effectively triple our capacity. Uh, we were capacity constrained in the old factory. Uh, this new factory allows us to scale up um, considerably. It has another couple of benefits as well. It, it eliminates or substitutes uh, a significant number of uh, hazards uh, that, that our employees were uh, had to work with in the old factory, uh, but because of our robots in the new factory and our conveyor system, we've managed to eliminate a lot of the health and safety uh, risks that we were dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's a much um, it's a much better place to work for health, safety, and well-being. Yeah, it's a twelve million dollar investment, so it's a significant investment for us. Uh, but I guess that's the vagaries of, of exporting. If you wait for markets to be at the perfect state of demand to then invest in the capacity, that never happens. Uh, so you, you have to uh, take a, uh, a view on your markets and invest accordingly and be prepared uh, to have the capacity when, uh, when, you, when they are ready. And you have to keep your market development efforts going at the same time as you're planning that capacity improvement. I think one of the challenges coming out of COVID was the shipping and logistics issues that we had. That has settled down um, now. It's considerably better than it was, both in terms of pricing and availability and reliability of sea freight. Uh, so we managed to trade our way through that part of the of, of things okay, and, and that's, that's looking better. Um, I guess the challenge that we have is making sure that we continue our market development efforts uh, even if the short term looks difficult. Um, one of the things that we can do in our business though is there is quite a lot of diversity, both in terms of geography and crop type. So traditionally this business started protecting wine grapes. Uh, that's probably about half our business now with the other half being pit fruit, stone fruit, avocados, mangoes, almonds, essentially, as I said, anything that can be impacted by frost. So there is some natural, there is a natural level of diversification across crop type and market that can um, handle some of those short-term difficulties with certain geographies or, or crops. I'd like our new factory to be absolutely maxed out to capacity. Uh, and that would, uh, that would show that we would be um, manufacturing and exporting uh, a considerable amount of fans, more than what we're doing now. Uh, I'd like to see us having multiple 
representative offices around the world supporting our distributors and supporting our customers. Uh, and I'd like to see us um, really be at the forefront of frost protection globally. So when people think about frost protection, they think about Frostbox. Ticket sales are up for this year's ASB Classic, with the tournament boasting stars including Coco Goff and Gail Monfils. Yet while tennis enjoys a post-COVID resurgence, the sport is facing challenges, not least the need for a roof at Stanley Street. I spoke with tournament director Nico Lamperin and Auckland Tennis CEO Rowan West. Sounds like extremely promising. Um, you know, we are probably slightly ahead of what we had in, in 2023 in terms of ticket sales, which was a, a record year. Um, you know, we keep hearing from other promoters around the country that their numbers are down 20 to 30 percent, uh, which is not the case for us. Uh, so extremely positive news. Um, on top of ticket sales, our um, sponsorship sales are also um, 25 percent above what we projected. Uh, so again, a very positive sign of the, uh, the, the, the health of the, of the tournament. In terms of naming rights for the venue here, at the moment we are actually out of contract. So uh, it is still the ASB Tennis Arena and, and will be for, for the tournament. But in terms of the, the future, absolutely it is an op open property and uh, very interested to talk to uh, organisations uh, that might be interested. Tennis is actually booming across the city. Uh, we're one of those, uh, probably the two or three lucky sports coming out of COVID that really had a spike in uh, membership and participation numbers. Uh, one of those socially distant sports uh, back, back in the in the COVID days, and that has continued. And, and we've actually seen a 50% increase in our club membership across the board, uh, 2023 over 2022. Absolutely, the development that is required here at Stanley Street is vital for not only the long-term sustainability of the tournament, but also community tennis here at Stanley Street. We do have a remit to ensure that uh, Centre Court is open to the public and can be used by the public and we're increasing our number of community-based uh, programs and activities here on Centre Court and uh, in, in terms of uh, putting a roof on the, the, the Centre Court that's really big obviously to protect the tournament but also provide much more usable time for the community. Uh, interesting stat, I've just got some uh, uh, data from uh, NIWA and MetService. From 1st of January to the 30th of November, Auckland had 212 rain days. So that basically means that Centre Court here lost over 3,000 usable hours of court time in those 11 months. And that, that really is unsustainable in the long term to have such an iconic venue not available, A, to the public and the community, but also putting the pressure 
on the tournaments of, of that weather, weather. We need a solution. Yeah, I guess the, the, the challenge is with the WTA today, but it's actually across the, the, the all, all categories and, and we we'll, might be facing a similar challenge with the ATP in, in the years to come. Um, there's a trend towards, you know, premium events. Uh, so the, the power of the, of the Grand Slams and the thousands is only getting big, bigger. However, we are in a unique situation here in Oakland because we're in the lead up to the Australian Open. Uh, this is the start of the year, this is a new season, this is a time when you know, players come off the off-season, they need to play matches um, and they want to get ready before, before playing the first Grand Slam of the season. So we have a lot that we can add to the, the picture of the overall tennis calendar, um, which is why you know, we, we, we believe this, this tournament has everything to continue to succeed in the future. The highlights will be, uh, I guess, you know, we, we've managed to assemble a, um, a stellar player field. Um, you know, bringing back Coco Goff, uh, she left the tournament as the defending champion. She's coming back as the reigning US Open champion. Um, you know, something we're, we're really proud of. Um, also, you know, being able to bring back Caroline Wozniacki. She's been off the tour for the last three years. Uh, she's coming back. She was in the fourth round of the US Open, so she's, she's really playing some good tennis again. Um, Elina Svitolina also uh, stopped playing for a year to become a mother, back on the tour already, back in the top 25. Um, you know, really sp special names. Um, on, the woman, on the men's tour, sorry, um, you know, Ben Shelton, it was, it was a in very interesting story. He came to Oakland as a wildcard last year, first time out of the US. Uh, he's coming back as a top 20 player, semi-finalist at the US Open managed by Roger Federer's management company um, and someone who will win a Grand Slam in the years to come. Uh, we add the likes of you know, Felix Ogialiasim, Arthur Fis, uh, next generation of, of players, um, Cam Nori, who's for us uh, considered as a, uh, as a Kiwi, and also the, the, the fun and, and, and charismatic Guillermo Fis. I think that's exactly what we wanted to be in terms of the, of the player field, so we're really looking forward to it. I've known Gail for 18 years, um, and you know, we speak on a daily basis. Um, I think I remember last year we were actually uh, sitting in the, in the corporate boxes. It was the, the last day of the tournament, it was probably around 10 p.m. And I remember doing a FaceTime with Gail and some of the journalists who were just wrapping up the, the tournaments. And at the time, Gail was injured and, and he did tell the, the journalists that he would come in, uh, in 2024. It wasn't that straightforward because we, we had to work through uh, a few details. Um, but I just wanted to make sure, you know, he, you know, that would fit within his schedule. He, un he, un he understood the importance of the, of the tournament. And you know, once we uh, we've all agreed on this, then you know it was uh, it was easier to get the deal done. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz.
Christo Carmen is the founder of Wise, the international payments company listed on the London Stock Exchange with a market cap of some £8 billion. Christo is currently in Australia and joins me now to talk about his journey from startup to global payments disruptor. Hi, Christo. Good to be on your show, Will. Thanks for joining me. So I wanted to start at the beginning. Uh, it seems like a really interesting journey to get to where you are today. What, what sort of got you into business um, and, and how did you start that, that startup? Well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm an expat or I'm, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant, if you, if you like, whichever, whichever you call me. I moved from Estonia, where I grew up, to London. I started work in London when I was, uh, uh, it's about 15 years ago now. And that's where I first experienced how it is to move money from one country to another because I was getting paid in the in the UK in pounds, but all my savings and mortgage and everything else was back in Estonia in Euro. So I had to make the transfer with my bank to move my money from one to the other. And on the way I found out that you know 500 euros were missing somewhere and then kind of figured out that there is a problem of how people move money between countries. Um, we developed a solution for this in, with, with WISE, or then called TransferWISE, which was uh, it's about 13 years ago now. And, uh, and since then, turns out there's a lot of people and businesses who have the same challenge and they don't really want to pay what they kind of end up paying their banks and they don't enjoy the experience that comes with international payments and we've found a way how to do this so much better. So we're now, as you say, we're a, we're a pretty, pretty global phenomenon. We're moving about 200 billion Australian, New Zealand dollars, uh, roughly, uh, every year and serving 10 million customers around the world. A lot of them in Australia and actually a lot of them in New Zealand as well. You're not making it over to New Zealand on this, on this occasion? I won't. I'm really sorry for that. I I know it's uh, it, it, you take it really personally when people come to Australia but they don't make the extra leg to New Zealand. But <laughs> Not at all. It's I, all right. I do have to apologise this time, but definitely on my travel plans. That was just that some someone mentioned here that um, you know you had a bucket list dream of of motorbiking across the country here. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, so back to your business journey. I mean, taking on, I mean, it's one thing looking at a problem and, and, and seeing there could be a solution, but then taking on what's basically the global banking system um, and, and having, I suppose, the confidence and, and the, the, the ability to do that, you know, it can't have been easy. How, how did you mount that challenge? All the, all the good things don't come easy. So it's been a, hard, it's been a lot of hard work and um, you know, we we have a team of five thousand people now, all all across the world to do that. So it's definitely not definitely too big of a task for me and my co-founder. So we we had to find some really smart people to to do that with us over the years. Um, and what we're taking on is you know, it's really a slice of what banks do. Um, banks are really very usually very domestic in their in their focus and, and what they do, uh, but. There are people and businesses who do trade internationally or who move their who move their lives and, and money internationally. And for domestic banks, it's actually a pretty hard job to do it to do it well. So so that's where we come in. Um, and I think the world has developed quite a lot as well because people are not so much more stuck with their 
with their bank and getting everything relating to money from from their from their bank where their paycheck arrives. It's quite common for folks to shop around and use one bank maybe for borrowing and a mortgage and another bank for their everyday payments. And then when it comes to businesses, they use whether it's Stripe or IDN or or some other services for payments and anything international they might use Wise for. So I think the world has really moved on and internet has helped make banking also more competitive and better for brand consumers. So it's been uh, quite a journey, but I think there's actually quite a bit of attainment for us. Okay, yeah, and I suppose the, the technology, the development of the technology has really helped that. And, and if we look at the open banking sort of revolution, um, you know, obviously the UK and, and Europe is a little bit ahead of where we are, uh, definitely in New Zealand and, and in Australia. Um, what's your view on how far behind we are or, or where Australasia is at um, compared to, to Europe? Um. I think that's, you're not in some ways, you're not in a unique position. Every country, I would say 15 years ago, was in a place where their financial services, regulations and regimes were were built for the telegraphic age and the internet had turned up and the the way that we'd like to use financial services has completely changed with with mobile and and the way that we do this today. So, so there was definitely a, a phase of catching up for every single country in the world. And it's just a matter of how quickly some have achieved that. Um, I think you're not, you're, you're doing quite well. Um, I, I don't find, I know the Australian set up a little bit better than the New Zealand, but someone asked me this today, I don't find this very different from Europe. Uh, there are some nuances and there's certainly room for improvement, but it's not bad. Mm. Well, we have a, um, a personal banking inquiry um, being launched here in New Zealand. Um, does WISE have a view on what should be perhaps included in that inquiry? For sure. So there are a couple of things that we see. So you asked me, I gave you a very positive answer because I, I think generally it is great. We, and from our perspective, from our customers' perspective as well, we can, uh, we can, we have, we can serve your customers, and we can uh, build an alternative uh, for for banks. I think what's missing uh, still today is uh, transparency and competitiveness across banks, and especially. So again, this is something that we strongly focus on, which is international transfers, and. I've done the analysis recently for Australia, and we'll get on to the um, to the New Zealand banks in a second. But um, when we when we look at all the large or Australian banks, and I expect because they're the same banks, you, you'll have the same experience in New Zealand. They tell you that it's free to use your money internationally, whether you make transfers or use your card. It costs zero Australian dollars um, to make a transfer, but once you, when if you're if you're a little bit smarter than that, and you start looking at the exchange rate that they they provide on the on the screen, you compare that with Bloomberg or Reuters or Reserve Bank of Australia or, or any other authority who knows what the real exchange rate is, 
you'll find that there is a three, four percent markup uh, in what the bank kind of tries to convince you that is the is the exchange rate. So of course everyone like all the bankers know and everyone in financial services knows this is not the like this is how they charge their customers. So that's the way to um, to charge fees. Uh, but it's it's not obvious to if you're a small business owner or if you're an expert who just arrived in the country that this is what you're so if you do the maths you figure out for sending um, ten thousand dollars it costs you four hundred to make the transfer. That's not obvious. And if you knew that you you'd quite likely be looking at the other banks and what they do and if if they could do it better. But because it's not the customers are are not told what they're charged that competition doesn't exist. And as an outcome, it is very expensive to use your bank and the service is not improving because the banks are not competing. So the things that we're raising with, uh, in, or what we're recommending that the uh, New Zealand inquiry would look into is, uh, at least in the context of international payments, how to improve transparency, how to improve therefore the customer uh, experience and then eventually the competitiveness of the of the bankings from the international perspective. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems uh, like a no-brainer really to have transparency in that space. Um, thank you for that. I, I think just the, a final question, uh, just more about from your entrepreneurial perspective, um, we have a lot of New Zealand startup founders and, and, and business people who are wanting to go global from day one, or you know, they, they want to start a global business from New Zealand. Um, you know, how... Can you give any advice, perhaps one piece of advice that you might give to a founder that wants to build, you know, a billion dollar company globally? I think, I think generally, um, so I'm from a very small country. There's only 1,000, well, there's only 1 million Estonians on this planet. Um, and actually UK as a country is also quite small. So we think of tech businesses that get started in small countries. I think we have this need to be global on the outset. And I think for Europeans or for European countries, that has been a, that has been an opportunity um, because, um, because the markets, so if compared to the US where a lot of the tech companies are born, the US market is so enormous on its own that for a good while, you're going to be okay just trying to serve the local market. Whereas if you come from a smaller country like New Zealand or Estonia or, or even the UK, the market is not so big that you kind of have to think of your product from a from a global lens from the the outset. So I think that's not not a bad not a bad way to look at it. Um, that whether we build something, would we build it for New Zealand or for the globe? And what we are seeing actually in our own data when we um, when we basically look at what, what COVID has done, we for sure have seen that small businesses that come about these days are inherently more international, both in the way of where they sell their products, but also where they have contractors and where they where they get their kind of operations done. So I, I think this is happening anyway, that uh, you know, businesses are getting more international. Um, and I think it's definitely a good trade for the founders to think about you know, how do we do this, how do we do this globally from the outset. Okay. Well, thanks for your insights. Thanks so much for joining me.
National Basketball League franchise, the New Zealand Breakers, have become one of the first professional sports franchises to obtain ESG certification. I'm joined by the organisation's chief executive, Lisa Edzer, to discuss why. Lisa, why don't we start with the nuts and bolts of this certification? What's it involved? How have you got to this position? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically ESG is, uh, I guess, there are three pillars that you report against for sustainability, environmental, social and governance. This was introduced to us uh, through our ownership group, K2 Integrity out of New York. They're a risk assessment firm. A couple of our owners and investors use them a lot when they're making you know, their big decisions. Um, and K2 were branching out into sports, so the introduction was made. They came to us to see if we'd like to sort of be the first to do the sports certification. Um, it involved going through, uh, I guess, like a questionnaire where they measured the different things we do in the in the, in the areas of ESG. Um, they validated those. It certainly wasn't a lip service. They mm-hmm. We had to give them examples and they followed through. Uh, talking to partners or providers that we use, um, yeah, measured, I guess, how we perform. And um, after a few meetings and about nine months of work, um, issued our certification. So a, a lengthy process, sounds pretty detailed as well. Yeah, to be fair, it was made a bit longer because when we were introduced to them, we were in the middle of our season. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of had to, I, I, we worked around, I guess, playing games and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but lengthy, yes, because they went to the extent as I say, to make sure that we weren't just ticking a box, that we were actually, they needed to validate what we said that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but an easy process, I have to be honest. Most of the things were um, activities we already do or policies we already have. We just needed to formalise them. So what might be some examples of that sort of stuff that you already had in place? That we already had in place, you, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, the sustainability side, I mean, like I hope everybody in New Zealand, getting rid of single-use plastics, Mm -hmm. recycling, um, you know, thinking, being conscious of things like the green space outside our office and how we can help rejuvenate that, those kinds of things. And the social and governance side, again, for me, common sense, but, um, you know, naturally we're not, uh, we don't... um, we're not biased in terms of race, gender, you know, um, sexual preferences, those kinds of things. They don't make a difference to who we hire, who we don't hire. Having a good policy around the way that you interact with people and the way you treat people, those kinds of things, they were already in place. As I say, they just they weren't formalised. They were just a natural expectation of what it means to be in the breakers. Any surprises for you in there or anything that you've had to change reasonably significantly on the back of it? Or? No, no, really no no significant changes. As I say, and I don't mean to repeat myself, but it was just about formalising things. So having, you know, having some clear policies in place where people can refer to it. You're getting rid of those grey areas and then you're minimising, you know, any sort of uncertainty. And I think that that was probably what we needed to focus on most. We've, we're fortunate in a small business that, that we own and run to, to not have a lot of sort of corporate guidelines around us and perhaps that's where we needed just to, that is where we needed to step up a little bit and make those policies. So, you know, ESG certification, it's a growing area. Yes. Businesses are doing it all over the shop. Yeah. Um, obviously the franchise is a business but it's yes. also a sports team and that's yeah. what most people would sort of perceive it as. Correct. Why, why do why? this? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, 
We've certainly found that um, more and more investors uh, are looking for this kind of thing when they're looking to invest and, you know, the cost of running a sports franchise is not getting any cheaper so we're always looking for new investors um, and be that personal investment or sponsorship. Mm -hmm. But also um, consumers and employees have a higher expectation, I think, these days to, you know, understand that you're not only a good steward of your financial capital, but that you're thinking about the social and the governance side. And so we wanted to be able to, you know, demonstrate that we have that framework in place and that we do actually deliver on what we say. You know, if a fan's deciding where to spend their $50 on whether they want to come along with the family to a, a basketball game or perhaps spend it elsewhere, we want them to know that, you know, there's, we've got a bit of depth to us. It's more than just a, a sports game. And I presume you've brought some sponsors along on this ride or that you've been engaging with them about this process as well. What's the feedback been from them? Yeah, we absolutely. Well, our naming rights partner, BNZ, have their own ESG um, policies in place and they're certainly delighted that we have similar um, values as, as they do in this space. Um, Manuka Doctor also, a partner that's come back on board this season. They export goods globally, so they're very aware of carbon footprint. We obviously have a large carbon footprint being that we play in an Australian league. So um, for both of us having the understanding of you know what's necessary to help sort of reduce that and minimise that carbon footprint, that's made a big difference for them as well, being a part of, of the Breakers family. Would you expect other sports teams to follow suit? or I would hope so, yeah. I think we have a responsibility to do that. Um, you know, we also have a platform to be able to speak about it with through our, our players and our athletes, so we're in a, in a fortunate position there. But really, I mean, a, a more sustainable and responsible sports industry is no different to a more sustainable and responsible world at the end of the day. Lisa, thanks for your time. Well, thank you for having me. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 